from the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack, a broadcast that celebrates the talent and diversity of the LGBTQ plus community and their allies and provides a place to showcase their remarkable voices and stories. Migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, stateless and internally displaced persons that identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender or intersex face a complex array of challenges and threats throughout all stages of the displacement cycle. Challenges faced by LGBTI persons of refugee backgrounds include discrimination, violence including rape, torture and murder, difficulty in accessing basic social and economic rights and barriers to articulating their protection needs during asylum procedures. Welcome to a Not Thinking Straight special, Asylum. of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, defends the rights of LGBTI individuals and recognises that refugee claims based on sexual orientation or gender identity fall under membership in a particular social group, one of the five grounds for protection enumerated in the Refugee Convention of 2012. Although there has been significant development in LGBT rights over the past decade, the majority of this progress has occurred in the West. Homosexuality is still illegal in 74 countries with varying levels of punishment. The death penalty for this applies in 13 countries, including Sudan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Mauritania, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, and provinces of Nigeria and Somalia and parts of Syria and Iraq. As people from a refugee background, their experiences of war and displacement trauma is combined with experiences of homophobia and transphobia. Experiences reported by the LGBTI refugees include alienation from friends and families, including stigmatisation, abandonment and violence, forced marriage to someone of the opposite sex, public humiliation. In countries like Indonesia, convicted gay men are lashed during public ceremonies. Hunting of LGBTI individuals, gay dating apps are intercepted by police and homophobic groups to punish and torture LGBTI victims. Correctional rape, often used as punishment against females for transgressing gender norms. Engaging in survival sex work due to the scarcity in employment opportunities. And continued rape of young men by gangs within refugee camp as punishment. LGBTI refugees face persistent barriers to accessing health services due to their sexual orientation or gender identity. 
They are often fearful of disclosing their LGBTI status due to the high risk of being subjected to degrading treatment from service providers and consumers. LGBTI refugees are at heightened risk for poor or unmanaged sexual health, anxiety disorders, depression, suicidal thoughts, feelings of isolation and loneliness, dissociative disorders, and difficulty with trust and intimacy. LGBTI refugees face amplified susceptibility to mental health challenges due to their exposure of different forms of stress, including isolation, persecution, and lack of social support. These symptoms can persist long after resettlement in countries like Australia. Although all refugees face challenges with managing their sexual health, those who identify as LGBTI face a heightened vulnerability due to the need of disclosing their sexual orientation during assessment in order to access the necessary treatments. LGBTI refugees may begin to acknowledge and more freely disclose their same-sex attraction or gender identity once they are in a more tolerant society. Service providers and interpreters face unique communication challenges that can impact the relationship with the LGBTI client. Sexual orientation and gender identity terms vary immensely across culturally and linguistically diverse communities. Confusion and cultural taboo have tainted the type of language used to refer to LGBTI people, with inaccurate and offensive terms often being used due to a scarcity in sensitive terminology. Sexual orientation, sex and gender identity are all separate concepts. It's so easy for LGBTI people to fall under the radar of need, both within the camps, if they are lucky enough to get asylum somewhere outside the camps as well. In today's Not Thinking Straight, you'll hear some beautiful stories, some sad stories and some empowering stories. But the messages behind these stories are important for everyone to hear. Many of these issues would simply not be known by most people. Heart. 
feel you in the sunshine Or happily in the dark Where kindness is a card game Or a bent-up cigarette In the trenches in the hard rain With a bullet and a bed He says, help me out Help is coming For less. The following is a reenactment using Australian actors to voice the story of Ali, not his real name, but his real story. The Middle East. I was born in the Middle East. My family became friends with the Reza family. We met playing street soccer. I began to realise that I was attracted to Syed Reza. 
he was attracted to me as well. He was beautiful, inside and out. We started spending time together, but we had to keep it a secret. Because being gay is a criminal offence where I'm from. We would meet in abandoned buildings at night where we could talk, hold hands, kiss and be intimate. I loved him, but we were scared every day. One day we were found together. We were terrified. Sayed went back to his house and I started walking home. I never made it. Said's male relatives attacked me. I tried to fight back, but it was five against one. I was stabbed with a knife in the back. I was found bleeding near my home. My mother took me to the hospital. I could have died. And I think that's what they wanted. The men who attacked me realised I was still alive. They got a militia involved and my family started to receive threats. I hid at a relative's house who helped me leave the country. It was the only way I could survive. Eventually, after many years of hiding in other countries, I escaped to Australia. I have never been home. I thought I would be safe in Australia. And I had family here that I could stay with. But I was locked up. That was eight years ago. Last year, I sewed my lips together in desperation. In Australia's immigration prisons, I cannot be free. I cannot be who I am. COVID has meant that I haven't had any visitors for most of 2020. Most days I just sit in my room waiting for something to happen. Now the Immigration Minister has refused to even look at my refugee claim as a gay man fleeing life-threatening violence. After that, my case manager said, there's nothing for you here. Do you want to go back home? I said, I can't go home. I'll be killed. I want to live. 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 Syria. It's, it's kind of quite understandable. In the camp we were 400 uh, men. When I reached Arnhem, we were all put in a prison. And I kind of was thinking, what if I was a, a Dutch 20 years old guy who lives in Arnhem his whole life? and then finds out that uh, 400 men from all kind of different cultures are coming to his town to live in a prison. It, it is kind of scary. I kind of understood why people have these kind of opinions. I've been through nine countries illegally traveling with groups and big, big groups of people. And all that I saw are just people who saw, who saw death and they were running away from it. Um, Al-Assad is bombing. Uh, the, free con uh, the free army is bombing and, and these are the people who are killing us just because we are Christian or, or we are atheists or we are gay or yeah, if they know that I was gay they will throw me from a high building. Russia is bombing, America is bombing, Holland even bombed a couple of months ago. There's a lot of parts that are just fighting in one land. Who the fuck can live there? We just have to run for our lives. So yeah, 
if you put uh, yourself in our shoes, this is the only thing you can do, which is just to run and keep running. And that's what I did. I ran to Lebanon, I couldn't find anything. I ran to Turkey, it was worse. I ran to Europe and that was like kind of the best choice. Whenever I, I, I talk about my story, I talk a lot about the small stuff that makes me a human. Like my mom, when she said goodbye to me and how, how tragic it was. My boyfriend, while I'm fighting my ass off to, to bring him here. This is from my boyfriend. He gave me this before we leave. I left in the last day. A cigarette that, that has some, like a song on it. Do you remember the last kiss that you guys had? Yeah. It was in front of a taxi driver. <laughs> because people really actually uh, don't really see it this way. What we see on TV is more like these thousands of people who are crossing border lines. They don't know that each one of them lost a big major thing in their lives. And they are actually uh, not really different from any one of us. It's somebody who's, who wants to survive. Actually, it's, uh, it's a whole country that needs to survive. That's why. And now we share a story from our regular contributors, I'm from Driftwood. This is the story of Mustafa. Seen as too gay, too Western or both, his safety and that of his family were constantly threatened, even resulting in the death of a family member. Thanks to hard work and a Fulbright scholarship, he was able to enrol in grad school and relocate to the United States. While his new home country offered a more hospitable environment for living an openly gay life, he quickly learned that while his life was no longer in danger, persecution of another kind was ever-present. You're listening to Not Thinking Straight and I'm Michael Mack and this is a story from the I'm From Driftwood podcast. Baghdad, Iraq. My name is Mustafa. I am from Baghdad, Iraq. It was 2003. It was a hot summer day in, in Iraq. Um, I was coming out of my work where I worked in the green zone with an American company, crossing a bridge, trying to take a cab to go back home after a long day of work. I come the next day to work, and one of my coworkers come to tell me the day before, as I was crossing the bridge, him and his militia friends were driving over the bridge. They saw me crossing the bridge, and they thought that I was gay. And just because I was carrying a passenger bag, and they considered this to be a Western and gay kind of sign. And they wanted to kidnap me and ransom my family. My friend who is at work, who was working with the militia while working with me in the company, he is the one who recognized me and he is the one who diverted them away from attempting to kidnap me. Fast forward from that date, one day I was sitting at home at night with my family um, I hear knocking on the outside gate um, and, you know, I walk out. Someone on the other side of the door uh, say that they are here for, for my dad. They are tenants in his uh, building, apartment building. I um, open the door 
and while it's completely pitch black, you couldn't see anything, all I know, someone was pointing a gun to the back of my head and saying that we know that you are infidel, we know that you are gay, you need to quit working with um, you know, the, the Americans uh, or foreigners and uh, we will go after you and go after your family if you don't quit your, your behavior. Luckily, I didn't get shot at that day. Um, ran back home, you know, completely shivering and, and scared. Obviously, couldn't tell my family that they started calling me gay, but I told them they are threatening me because of my association with an American company. Shortly after this threat, my brother-in-law and his brother both got kidnapped and murdered. Following that, they went even further and they tried to attack my other sister and her husband in their apartment. And literally just by luck, they happened to be out of the apartment for that day. So from that point forward, I knew that there is absolutely no future for me in, in Iraq. Shortly before that, one of my friends have applied for a Fulbright scholarship program. This is a program that's sponsored by the Department of State, and it enables exchange students to come and study uh, in the United States. It was very competitive, but I worked really hard for a year. I got accepted for the Fulbright program. I remember receiving that email, and this is probably the most overwhelming congratulation that I've ever seen or heard in my entire life because that was the moment that I knew my entire life is about to change. I got accepted in Syracuse University to do my master's. Uh, I was really excited about all of this. I moved to the United States and everything in the beginning was overwhelming. I was adjusting, making friends, meeting new people. So as I started feeling a little bit more comfortable around my sexual orientation, I started exploring ways to connect with other people that have similar um, you know, sexual orientation. And the LGBT Resource Center in Syracuse University was the first thing that I could, you know, find and, and thought it would be a safe space for me to connect with them. There was an event. Uh, in the event, I started meeting people. People obviously started asking about my background, where I'm from. And one of them was saying, hey, what are you doing after this? And I said, I actually don't have anything to do. Um, so he said, oh, we're, you know, meeting and having a party at a, at a house if you want to join us. And, you know, I said, yeah, that, you know, that is completely fine. His friend came to pick us up, who ironically happened to be uh, also from the Middle East. And I very quickly realized that their intentions wasn't to go to a party or just, you know, chill or, or, or you know, just talk or eat or drink or whatever it is that they actually were fetishizing me. And when they expressed the idea that, hey, let's go and have sex. When I was like, I'm not sure, um, the guy that was driving the car who's from the Middle East, he said, maybe he is not uh, into it. And the other guy, he's like, come on, who doesn't have a Middle Eastern uh, fetish? I realized, you know, there is a mix of people. Some of them will continue to, to uh, see me just as a fetish. Uh, and some of them were really wonderful and, and continue to be friends of mine um, until today. Fast forward, I graduated, I finished my degree, moved to Boston, started seeing a little bit more of the microaggressions around my other parts of my identity. 
um, but wasn't prominent enough for me to actually raise the alarm and say, this is something that I'm going to be suffering from in the future. Um, however, all of that started changing very quickly after moving to uh, New York. I remember very clearly a very senior professional at a, at a company. Literally, he said, so you are gay, you are Muslim, you are Iraqi, you are from the Middle East, uh, you are an immigrant. I don't know if I should love you or hate you. And he said it relatively jokingly, but the message was loud and clear. The tone is being set for how people like me will be perceived uh, from the top. Even though the United States uh, at the time was the right decision, and I don't regret it, it opened a lot of doors for me, but I feel that the society here puts a cap on you as well. So I am realizing very quickly whether the United States will continue to be opening those doors for me or if I have maxed out on, you know, uh, my opportunities here and my future here. And I know many people might look at my story and think you basically came out of, you know, harm way in the bigger uh, picture the United States is really a blessing for you. Why complaining? I think my answer to people that might be thinking this way, in each context and in each environment, each problem is, is big for the context of that situation and for that scenario. Just because I am not being threatened and there isn't a gun being pulled, pulled and you know, put it in, in my head or in my family's head, it doesn't minimize the issues that I have now, but I can guarantee you many people will have the exact same challenges. This is not just my story. This is really the story of thousands and thousands that live today in the United States. It's just that they go completely unnoticed um, every day because there are other issues or uh, people are not recognizing that when you combine those components of your identity, it creates a completely new challenge for you that doesn't necessarily fit in any bucket uh, that, that people recognize and associate with. Afghanistan. I don't know how long I'm going to be safe here because now they are going to search house to house in some places. There are Taliban groups going around so I only saw two motorbikes two people on each armed people and uh, when the you know gunshots and the things start we go down in the basement but when it's calm we are up in the second floor you know one of our colleagues he saw that the Taliban were going house to house and searching in that specific block and witnessed the person was shot dead in front of his eyes in front of their apartment, their flat, where they're living. 
Her colleagues are freaked out mentally and psychologically. They're not well, but then uh, physically, so far, thanks to God, nothing has happened to any of our colleagues. To be honest, I don't even know if I have a chance to get out. How would I go to the airport? Because I can't imagine, you know, going to the airport while they're on the streets. I just don't want to take this risk of going out and then facing somebody, you know, out of the place. Taliban are now playing smart. You can see that they want, they know how to do publicity for themselves. They are just trying to be calm, you know, and, and show to the world that they're like, they've changed from 90s. Not just me, not just my colleagues, everyone who is an activist, who, is, who has been an activist, now they're hiding. The people who are on the streets, they're, they're normal, common, you know, the general public who are shopkeepers and those kind of people. People were thinking in Kabul that Kabul might not fall for next couple of months. I mean, if we knew that it's going to fall down quite soon, we would have been prepared a bit more, probably surprising for everyone that they took over and Ghani just left the country without any notice or without any address to the nation. Everybody is scolding him. Um, they call him betrayer and they call him all sorts of those kind of words that you can imagine. I couldn't imagine after 20 years of all these money spent in Afghanistan and all the efforts made, after 20 years again, a Taliban regime. It's unbelievable, the same scenario. It is, it is actually disappointing to see all these gains that we made through past 20 years with this new generation. Everything has has gone back. You're listening to Asylum, a Not Thinking Straight special. Australia. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. Senator Abetz. As Australians, we have a right to determine who comes to our country and the circumstances in which they come. Australia's intake of non-Australians should be undertaken on the basis of clear and understandable guidelines. The first should be Australia's need for labour, particular skills and the capacity to provide a sense of um, not domestically, not a sense, a source of not domestically available labour. Prime Minister, COVID is here to stay, warranting surely a return to 2006 visa entrant levels of 360,000, now 640,000, and from countries with no democracy and or no rule of law and or no egalitarian traditions and or no industrial awards and or no Judeo-Christian love everyone, make a better world. Isn't Visa Shop University's claim of 23 billion in exports, actually income from cab drivers, 
and after hours cafe workers. Surely we should be enriched by annual inflows of diversity, but not as 60 Minutes highlighted, drowning in a tidal wave of foreign values. I think we need to make a very tough stance and put out clear message, refugees are not welcome here. My experiences uh, with the Australian community has been very positive actually. When we got to Australia everybody went out of their, their way um, to actually show us where things were when we had a question. So those little things shows the kindness of people and no matter where you come from you're welcome here and um, people actually want to help you out and they want you to um, you know, settle in, in your new country. My name is Mohammed Akfaji. I'm 24 years old uh, and I'm from Iraq. Uh, I studied a Bachelor of Software Engineering at the University of Adelaide and I'm now working as an IT graduate business analyst. My family was um, standing up against the regime in Iraq at the time um, and spoke up about the injustice and the cruelty that was going on um, in that country. And uh, my family was prosecuted and we had to leave Iraq immediately. When we were in Syria, thinking that any day uh, we'll be coming to Australia, we, we used to chat about it every night, saying that how wonderful Australia is going to be. And after a long time, when, when we didn't see any results happening, we kind of gave up on the idea that we will ever come to Australia and we kind of lost hope. My father decided to um, contact the embassy uh, personally and inquire about the, the visa itself. And um, they weren't sure where the visa was. So the Australian ambassador in, in Lebanon um, decided to follow up this herself personally. And uh, within a week or two, actually, she came back and said, your visa's here, you're moving in two days. So literally, we had two days to drop everything and get on a plane and come to Australia. We were actually welcomed by an Iraqi volunteer. And that first impression, um, knowing that there was someone else that spoke your language, was from your own country, from your own culture, has been through the same journey, kind of made it a lot, lot easier for us to feel welcome. While being at school, a lot of people actually encouraged me to take part in a lot of the opportunities that were available to us. Um, as students, I decided to jump on these opportunities as soon as I could. Um, all those just different activities really which um, for a young kid were a little bit challenging but I thought while you're in Australia you have this one shot opportunity to learn about all these skills otherwise you won't have a chance later on and it's going to be a lot harder. So I decided to actually try and be involved in the community and volunteer as well. Now that I'm in Australia, I want to give back to the community and I want to make sure that uh, the new arrivals and the new migrants to this country have a positive experience when they arrive in Australia. The same um, experiences that I've had and I want to make sure that the rest of the community understands some of these stories that people have to tell and um, I want to make sure that the policies that we have in Australia are um, hopefully changed to the, to the best for the, um, the mo people most in need and the vulnerable people. Um, who want to seek asylum in Australia and um, call Australia home. And now, from the University of New South Wales, Professor Jane McAdam explains very clearly the concept of seeking asylum, what it is and what it isn't.
You've probably heard of the idea of the asylum seeker arriving by boat as a queue jumper. Where does this idea of the queue jumper come from? Well, there is no queue to claim protection. It's not like going to the deli at Coles and taking a ticket and waiting for your turn to be protected as a refugee. So let's unpack this a little bit more to see why we have this sense of a queue jumper in Australian discourse. At the moment, Australia sets aside 13,750 places for refugees each year. Most other countries don't have a quota system like this, so it's something that we have done as a matter of policy, certainly not as a matter of legal obligation. In the last few years, Australia has set aside 6,000 resettlement places for refugees in camps or urban areas in other countries. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, has a look at who has the most acute need for resettlement. And then they decide on a list of people who are resettlement priorities. And that list is then looked at by the Australian government and other countries that resettle refugees from camps and other areas abroad. In many parts of the world, there aren't refugee camps for people to reach. And so often people are living in slum areas or in urban areas without rights to work, at risk of being detained and so on. The other point to note is that UNHCR's resettlement priorities don't operate according to when you actually turned up and registered with UNHCR. It operates more like a hospital triage system. So if you're sitting in emergency with a broken arm and somebody comes in in respiratory failure, then of course the doctors are going to help that person before they attend to your broken arm, even though you were there first. And it's the same with refugee resettlement. There isn't a queue. It's not like lining up at the deli. It depends on how dire your circumstances are as to whether or not you're prioritised for resettlement. In addition to the 6,000 places set aside for refugee resettlement from overseas, Australia has historically had 7,750 places in its special humanitarian program. Now, what's this? This is a program that is designed to bring other vulnerable people across from overseas. For instance, women at risk. Women perhaps who are on their own and at risk of sexual violence in their home country. It's also been used as a way for refugees already in Australia to bring across family members left behind. It's out of this number, the 7,750, that asylum seekers arriving in Australia, whether by plane or boat, have their visa component taken. So when we sometimes hear that asylum seekers who arrive here by boat are taking the places of refugees from camps and other settlements overseas, that's inaccurate. Those 6,000 refugee places are quarantined for resettlement and the onshore arrival component comes out of this other humanitarian program. Many people say that asylum seekers are coming here for economic opportunities. In other words, they are economic refugees. However, the statistics don't bear this out. Between 2011 and 2012, the Immigration Department's statistics show that 93% of asylum seekers who came to Australia by boat were in fact 
genuine convention refugees whom Australia has an obligation to protect. As you'd know, Australia receives refugees who come here by plane or by boat. Why do people arrive in such a way to Australia? Let's take the boat example. People come by boat because very often there are no camps for them to get to and they can't necessarily register with the UN agency. Furthermore, it's a bit like being in a burning building. Imagine you're waiting for the fire brigade to come and the flames are encroaching on you. You think, if I wait here, the fire brigade might come and I might be saved. If I jump, I might die, but I also might live. And as those flames come closer to you, you think the only opportunity I've got to survive is to jump. And asylum seekers sometimes describe the reason why they get on a boat as being similar to this. Even though they know the voyage is dangerous, they also know that it might offer the only opportunity for protection. If they're sent home, then they will be at risk of persecution, maybe even death or torture. If they get on a boat, they might lose their life at sea, but they might also have a chance of being protected. And so that's why people take very risky boat journeys, not because they want to, not because they're seeking an economic future or anything like that. It's because they are fleeing for their lives. Currently, it's estimated that there are around 15.4 million refugees in the world. Every year, UNHCR identifies about 800,000 refugees who really need to be resettled in other countries because of their need for protection. However, there are currently only 80,000 places all over the world where countries agree to take refugees. So you can see what the disparity is between the number of refugees needing resettlement and the number of places available. The Refugee Council of Australia has calculated that it would take around 117 years if you were to sit and wait to be resettled, if all refugees in the world could, in fact, be resettled.
And that song's called Innocent, a Requiem for Refugees by the late Ofra Haza. From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. Hello, I'm Alan Cumming. I'm here in Lebanon with UNHCR. Some of the most vulnerable people that UNHCR help are LGBTI refugees. These people are fleeing not only conflict, but also persecution and violence because of their gender orientation or their sexuality, often from their own families. Yesterday I met a young man, he's still a teenager, who has been through such horrible things. He's been raped, he's been tortured, he's been electrocuted, he's been humiliated in ways I cannot even comprehend. He told me that at one point he thought every person he met was a monster, and he thought that he would never find anyone who would show him kindness in this world. Australia, I would love you to prove him wrong. You've been incredibly generous so far, but you can help LGBTI refugees by going to unrefugees.org.au, learning more and hopefully giving more. And please, let that young man know that there is kindness in this world. Uganda. Do you personally dislike homosexuals? Of course, they are disgusting. What, what, what sort of people are they? How can you go? Uh, I, I, don't, uh, I never knew what they were doing. That's how I've been told recently that uh, what they do is terrible. Disgusting. Scared for their lives, Mary, her name changed for her safety, and her girlfriend are living in fear ever since Mary's picture was published in a local newspaper called Rolling Stone. People she knew from her neighbourhood followed her home and pelted her house with rocks. It was like a nightmare. I didn't expect it. And this is the time I realised that you can't know who is who. Uh, you can't know who a friend is. You can't know, especially when somebody gets to know that you're gay. When the paper, which has nothing to do with its famous American namesake, published Mary's photo last month, it called for the killing of homosexuals with a banner reading, Hang Them. A gay rights group says four homosexuals in Uganda were attacked soon afterwards. And so here, at the High Court in Kampala, the group sought a legal injunction to stop Rolling Stone from identifying more. The judge ruled in the group's favour, but activist Pepe Onziema says the damage has already been done on one hand, I'm happy that Rolling Stone has been stopped, but I'm, I'm sad that the other publications have, are already doing the same thing, so they've not been stopped through this court process right now. So that part of it makes me sad. Just hours before the ruling, the paper had published a new edition containing pictures of more Ugandans who the paper says are gay. The editor, Giles Mohammey, says he'll continue his fight against homosexuality. He denies inciting violence and says the paper's doing a public good by exposing gay people. This is a creeping evil. It's like a snake, you know? When you look at a snake in its young stage and you don't kill it, when it has grown up, it would not be easy for you to kill it. 
Ugandan society is conservative, most people are religious, homosexuality is illegal and widely believed to be wrong. But gay rights activists say the anti-gay movement is led by evangelical preachers backed by American missionaries who fuel the recent surge of homophobia. Last year, a new homosexuality bill was discussed here in the Ugandan parliament. It's got death penalty for some homosexual acts and life imprisonment for others. For now, it's been shelved due to international pressure, but the proponents of the bill are adamant it'll be passed next year. In the meantime, gay activists say the harassment just gets worse. Mary and her girlfriend had to flee their home, but Mary says it's only a matter of time before she'll be chased out of the new one. She dreams that in her lifetime, Ugandan society will become tolerant of homosexuals, but with the anti-gay movement undeterred, things for her may get a lot worse before they get better. Malcolm Webb. Al Jazeera, Kampala. Uganda already has a law that could be used against homosexuality, but the new backbench bill goes much further. The penalty for gay sex could be death. I got death threats. My children got death threats. The story of LGBT activism was lonely sometimes, but I felt that we are not just going to be buried like this. In a country where biblical values are deeply ingrained, homosexuality is generally deplored. My family was very conservative family, staunch Catholic family, me being the first born girl then. I had issues with gender identity. I transgressed gender unintentionally from the time I started being aware of my existence. They bought me a very nice yellow dress and I went and changed. I put football shots. I felt more comfortable that way. And then when I came out, my father was in the hallway and he gave me a slap and said, go back and dress up appropriately. And then I put on that yellow dress and I coiled inside. I felt that like I was different now. I wasn't proud anymore. I wasn't happy anymore. I fought against uh, my sexual orientation for so many years. I was on my own because my family didn't want anything to do with me at that point. And eventually, I was homeless. So I felt that I needed to heal from this thing that is causing me suffering. And so I took myself to churches. Reject sodomy! Reject perversion! They were praying for me. And then as they're praying, they start taking, stripping me off. It was my clothes making me a man. So they stripped me naked and they started to lay their hands on me. And these are boys and their pastor. They laid hands in particular on my uh, genital area because they say that was the center of it all. And that is when I felt that it is torture. But I said, this is who I am. Inside me, I felt it was okay to be the way that I was and that God was not mad at me. Seeing as homosexuality here is illegal, the gay scene is pretty much underground. I went to that bar and I just, I just started smiling. Life had come. I didn't want to go back home when I went there because I met lesbians, proud ones. No, no, people dressed like me, people expressing themselves like me, people in love with other women. They had their partners there. And I was like, I had reached heaven. 
Last year, under the headline, Hang Them, a tabloid magazine published the names and addresses of 100 gay men and lesbians. The effects of that publication were major. They were horrible. A lot of people during that period lost jobs, were evicted from homes, killed. Lawyers and activists had challenged the Anti-Homosexuality Act on the grounds that it violated human rights. My children know me as daddy and they call me daddy. They don't say, hey, trans daddy, hey, former lesbian trans daddy. You know, they call me daddy. Shouldn't matter, but it matters now that I identify as a transgender man because that is the beginning of a conversation about what transgender is. Not for me, because I have survived, but there are people who are still struggling to come out or to even ask for what they need. So then it matters. Kenya. It had taken gay rights campaigners three years to get their case to court. It was dismissed in less than three hours. Among the reasons, judges who feared they'd open the door to same-sex marriage. If allowed, it will lead to same-sex persons living together as couples. Such relationships, whether in private or not, formal or not, would be in violation of the tenor and spirit of the Constitution. At issue, not just the Constitution, but ingrained attitudes, cultural conservatism reinforced by religious leaders. The country has been defended by this ruling. And therefore, even us, there is a voice of God that is speaking now to say that we have listened to the voice of God. And that voice of God is enshrined in our constitution. Gay relationships cannot propagate life. You are here in this world because your mom and dad met and made love. Kenyans inherited their anti-gay laws from their colonial rulers, a bygone era. And with all the decorations up, it looked very gay indeed. Words changed their meaning, the British left, but the laws remained. The same is true of much of Africa. George Barassa is a Kenyan singer who came out and counted the cost, arrested repeatedly and then attacked by a mob. They started beating me up and then lifted me high and dragged me out of the house and then I went on with the beating which went on for quite some hours, two, three hours. Did you fear for your life? Yes, he did. Homophobia is a new African. Worse followed when he made this music video to highlight the struggles of Kenya's gay community. Authorities tried to ban it and issued a warrant for his arrest again. Today, he lives in exile in South Africa. I became a fugitive in the entire country. There was no way, nowhere else for me to hide. Gay and lesbian communities, victimized and vilified in many African nations, were watching Kenya today. This is a big setback for the cause of equality. John Ray, News at 10. From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack.
say this city has 10 million souls. Some are living in mansions, some are living in halls. Yet there's no place for us, my dear. Yet there's no place for us. Once we had a country and we thought it fair. Look in the atlas and you'll find it there. We cannot go there now, my dear. We cannot go there now. In the village churchyard, there grows an old yew. Every spring, it blossoms anew. Old passports can't do that, my dear. Old passports can't do that. The council banged the table and said, if you've got no passport, you are officially dead. But we are still alive, my dear, but we are still alive. Went to a committee, they offered me a chair, asked me politely to return next year. But where shall we go today, my dear? But where shall we go today? Came to a public meeting, the speaker got up and said, if we let them in, they will steal our daily bread. He was talking of you and me, my dear. He was talking of you and me. Thought I heard the thunder rumbling in the sky. It was Hitler over Europe saying, they must die. Oh, we were in his mind, my dear. Oh, we were in his mind. Saw a poodle in a jacket fastened with a pin. Saw a door opened and a cart let in. But they weren't German Jews, my dear. But they weren't German Jews. Went down the harbor and stood upon the quay. Saw the fish swimming as if they were free. Only 10 feet away, my dear. Only 10 feet away. through a wood, saw the birds in the trees. They had no politicians and sang at their ease. They weren't the human race, my dear. They weren't the human race.
I saw a building with a thousand floors, a thousand windows and a thousand doors. Not one of them was ours, my dear. Not one of them was ours. Stood on a great plain in the falling snow. Ten thousand soldiers marched to and fro, looking for you and me, my dear. Looking for you and me.
was the voice of the righteous saying they must die. He was talking about you and me, my dear. He was talking about you and me. Saw a lapdog in a jacket fastened with a diamond pin. Saw a door opened up and a stray cat led in. But they weren't called refugees, my dear. And they didn't have to live their lives in fear. Hiding in the rocks, listening by the sea. Heard the boat come around, so soon we will be free. Don't give up now, it's just a few feet more. Don't give up now, you can make it to the shore. Dreamed I saw a building. Ten thousand floors, a thousand windows, and a thousand doors. Not one of them was ours, not one, my dear. Not one of them was ours. Playing in the falling snow Ten thousand soldiers Marching to and fro Looking for you and me My dear Looking for you and me In the aftermath of the June 2016 attack on an LGBT nightclub in Orlando, Florida, the UN Security Council issued a statement condemning the targeting of persons based on their sexual orientation. This was the first time the United Nations took an official stance on LGBT discrimination. And perhaps surprisingly, it garnered support from a number of countries that outlaw homosexuality, including Egypt and Russia. So where do these draconian laws exist? Where is it illegal to be gay? Well, according to the UN, homosexuality is a crime in at least 74 countries, 13 of which impose the death penalty for these alleged crimes. These laws exist most pervasively in Africa and the Middle East, where lengthy prison sentences for psychiatric treatment, whippings, hard labor, and death by public stoning are all common punishments for homosexuality. Some of the most notable anti-gay laws exist in Uganda, where individuals can face life in prison for homosexual acts. These laws were first introduced by Uganda's British colonial rulers in the 19th century and retained through the country's independence in 1962. But they largely went unenforced until the early 2000s. That's when American Christian missionaries popularized the idea that gay people sought to destroy their society by preying on and recruiting children as homosexuals. 
This has also been directly linked to Uganda's infamous anti-homosexuality or Kill the Gays Bill, which in 2014 originally made homosexuality punishable by death. The bill was subsequently overturned, and no later versions have successfully made it through parliament. But an arguably worse place to be gay is Iran, which enforces capital punishment. The law makes a distinction for gay women, who are lashed 50 times for their first three offenses. But for any further offenses, the punishment is still death. Gay men can also be whipped for lesser acts, like kissing or holding hands. Iran's anti-gay laws stem from their adherence to Sharia law, which is a strict interpretation of the teachings of Islam. The Quran explicitly states that sex between men should be punished. However, it does not specify how, and later adds that those who repent should be left alone. Still, human rights groups estimate that between 4,000 and 6,000 people have been executed for such acts since Iran's Islamic Revolution in 1979. Afghanistan also adheres to Sharia law, and in effect strictly forbids homosexuality. While the country was under Taliban rule from 1996 to 2001, gay men and women were routinely executed. But these laws are not exclusive to Africa and the Middle East. In 2013, Russia enacted the infamous anti-gay propaganda law, which prohibits discussion or display of any non-traditional sexual behavior, ostensibly to protect minors. Additionally, Belize has outlawed same-sex activity since 1988. And today, their Immigration Act bars gay men and women from even entering the country. The United Nations and various human rights organizations have made efforts to decriminalize homosexuality. However, the worst offenders have yet to reform their anti-gay laws. And while Iran may have some of the strictest anti-gay laws, the country is surprisingly accepting of transgender people, and the government even funds gender reassignment surgeries. But is Iran really being open-minded, or is something going on? But while the high rate of surgeries may seem to suggest a more progressive Iran, in practical application, the situation is much worse than it seems. The issue stems from the fact that any non-heterosexual behavior is condemned. Thus, sex reassignment is more of an effort to bring a person's behavior and lifestyle in line with Islamic law. You're listening to Asylum, a Not Thinking Straight special. to Not Thinking Straight, and I'm Michael Mack, and this is a story from the I'm From Driftwood podcast. In the 1970s, Eric Namaki's parents were put on a list to be killed in Iran and fled the country. It was their own journey to freedom that taught Eric to embrace being who he truly is and inspired him to come out to his parents, who eventually learned to accept him. Eric Namaki, and I'm from Chagrin Falls, Ohio. My parents are originally from Tehran, Iran, where they were political activists um, in the late 70s. In 1979, the Shah shut down colleges, and that created a bigger uproar of demonstrations. Uh, and both of my parents were heavily involved in that. Uh, the Shah was trying to control um, everybody. And so he started killing students. And my parents were on a list to be captured and killed where they would actually show up to 
my parents' hometowns and go to their families trying to find them. So my parents had to just go totally underground and uh, leave the country, sneak into Turkey, and uh, they eventually snuck into Paris. Um, and my sister was born in Paris and uh, they lived there for two years. Um, they came to the United States in 1985. My parents and my sister moved from Paris to Cincinnati, Ohio, because my dad had an older brother who already lived in the States. And my parents were looking for work just to get established. It's the only people they knew. Um, and quickly after that, um, I was born and my parents moved to Cleveland because that's where my dad got a job. I was always involved in different kinds of artistic things such as dance, theater, and uh, piano. While I was in high school, I took classes at Cleveland State University uh, where I was involved in some of their drama courses and it was there that I met this boy who really opened up this thing inside of me where for the first time I was realizing, wow, like you really, you like boys, like this is, this is what you want. It wasn't f until a few months of us hanging out that he eventually told me that he liked me, but felt, but knew that I wasn't out and told me that he couldn't be friends with me anymore because it felt like it was difficult for him. So not very long after he told me that he liked me, I came to my mom, who's my best friend, and told her that I had feelings for this boy. She took a minute and she kind of pushed it off a little bit and said that she didn't know what to say. I could hear my dad like pounding downstairs, like he was pissed. And I just like remember just like, just dealing with the head on, like running downstairs, like hoping that my mom didn't tell him, but she did. And he um, was like, this is not the way that you're going to live your life. Uh, so you are gonna change that or you can't live here. So I said, okay, fine, I'm not gonna live here. So I packed my bag and I moved in with my sister who lived an hour away in Kent, Ohio. And I lived with her for six months. And in that time, I was able to explore that relationship with the boy. Unfortunately, it, at the time, wasn't right, just like relationships are not always right. And I felt like I didn't actually connect with him on the level that I, I wanted to. And I was like, wait a minute, this isn't right. Maybe I'm not gay because like this isn't connecting, this isn't working physically, emotionally. It wasn't until um, actually th about three years living in New York where just the feeling of wanting to be embraced by a man and not a woman. I just want to be with a boy. I want a man to hold me. I want to live that life. The next time I spoke to my parents about it is when I got into my first relationship with the boy. Um, at this point, you know, they had had their like little preliminary Eric's out, like, you know, my, my siblings, like kind of like it, the buzz was there. My parents like knew, like it was kind of there, but like it hadn't been officially stated. And um, I told my mom on the phone, like, there's someone I want you to meet. He's a boy um, and I really care about him. And both my parents were like, 
okay, my parents were visiting me in New York and I felt like that was a good time to introduce my ex-boyfriend at the time, my first boyfriend. And so we went and grabbed burgers at this place in Crown Heights that I really love. And my dad is a real gentleman and always opens the door for people. And as he, as we were entering um, the restaurant, he opens the door and my ex-boyfriend was walking through the door and my dad took his hand and put it on his back and um, led him into the restaurant. And I was behind my ex-boyfriend at the time and I saw that and I knew at that moment that my dad supported me 100%. Like, he, he knew that that was important for me. My parents made a journey because they needed to survive and believe that they deserved to live a life of freedom. And so I take that with me in everything that I do and every decision I make. I think about what would my parents do in this situation. Close in, like to close off is like not in our blood. Iran. Human rights organizations say rape is being used in Iran as a weapon against both women and men. Farah now lives in Turkey. He was a teacher and campaigner and one of the few people in Iran prepared to admit he is gay. It's against the law there, punishable by prison or even execution. It is forbidden and it is punished by death and actually going back to Sharia you have to be uh, pulled in four directions so you would be torn, torn in four directions. Torn apart. Uh, yeah, but these days the Islamic Republic has become very uh, modern. They just hang. Farouk was arrested after the election for putting up posters of a woman shot dead during the protests. He was accused of being a terrorist. And then he was raped. They want to give the feeling that people are absolutely helpless. Because that is the feeling that you get when you're being raped. You really feel helpless. And uh, it destroys you in many ways. This episode was to show the Iranians that nothing is off the table. Farouk was released after the rape. Then he heard he'd been denounced for being gay. He fled to Turkey in fear of his life. astronauts who travel to the moon. They can't live without their oxygen and their clothes. Life for a lesbian in Iran is same as this. They have to wear their mask every single day. 
what we see is that the homosexual person is harassed by their own family members and by their classmates in school. And because they cannot get help from anywhere, so they are very vulnerable to rape and to other forms of harassment. When a lesbian has to marry with a man that she doesn't like and her family forced her to marry, she's being abused by her husband and for sure her family. They have uh, experienced domestic violence, abuse and marital rape without the ability to seek uh, justice or help from the family members or from the government. A husband has the right to have sex with his wife anytime they want, in any shape they want. And a woman can't uh, complain about it because it's the husband's right. Being homosexual in Iran is considered to be a violation of the law. Same-sex relations is punishable by death. Um, according to the Iranian Penal Code. As a lesbian, you cannot come out in Iran. If you do, they will tell you that you are sick, you have a lot of mental issues, you have to change your sex if you want to live with another woman. Outright Action International decided to create a report on the situation of lesbians in Iran in order to raise public awareness both inside the country and internationally about the plight of the lesbian community members in that country. Our ultimate goal is to pressure the Iranian authorities to respect the basic human rights of the lesbians in that country and also help the lesbian community in Iran to seek international solidarity and support uh, in their struggle for uh, equal treatment and justice. I'm a lesbian and I just want to people know that the way that you think is unique for yourself. I don't have to think same as you. Iran's Queen of Pop, Gugush, has released a video in support of the country's gay and lesbian community. She is the first prominent Iranian with such a huge following to speak out against homophobia in Iran, where the topic is taboo and being convicted of homosexuality can carry the death penalty. The lyrics of the ballad, Behesht, talk of the forbidden love. The images show a happy young woman as seen from the eyes of her female lover, contrasted with scenes of disapproval. In the first 24 hours, it was uh, on, on Persian uh, websites where this video has been premiered. There were more than half a million clicks in the first 24 uh, four hours. And um, that shows like, like that this subject was something that, in any case, if you're for it or against it, it draws attention. Gugush was Iran's first pop diva, although the 1979 revolution brought the curtain down on her live performances until she immigrated to the West. She has remained popular with Iranians across the globe and fans underground in Iran, with whom she enjoys celebrity status on a par with that of Madonna or Elvis. 
you know, it has caused a discussion, which is a great thing. And a lot of them are writing that um, their lives have been changed. The comments that we've read, the messages we've received uh, since the release of the video shows that something, is, this was the first step for a change, for sure. Um, because before that, it was just not a subject it was talked about. And uh, if it was talked about, it was always talked about in a bad way. And in a, it's not moral, it's not right, they're just sick, they need help, uh, and they get punished. Uh, worst case, um, they have the death penalty. But now, it's a, the discussion is on a completely different level, which was the first step with this video. Gugush travels around the world performing to sold-out houses in European and U.S. cities with large Iranian populations of all generations. Her message, Freedom to Love for All, is for many a song of hope that Iran's society might become more tolerant. This is Not Thinking Straight, and I'm Michael Mack. And a million and one people said to see last night And a million and one people they cried And a million and one people waved goodbye to the land Waiting for the dawn to arrive If we had hope for our children, we would try To go afar and rebuild our shattered lives And to live far away from all lousy wars And not spend them behind closed doors And a million and one people waited in the dark under the starlit sky As the small boats were loaded with others who came Hoping they too would survive And a million and one people held their hands so tight, hoping that the seas would be kind. They had nothing but sadness and fear in their hearts, waiting for the dawn to arrive. In the waves our dreams are lost Their heartbeats heard a distant cry For we are lurking from the distant city lights Of the shores That some will never find And a million and one people held their hands together Hoping that the seas would be kind.
heart And a million and one people said to see Last night Waiting for the dawn to arrive Oh, waiting for the dawn to arrive Oh, my friends, this total madness must end all we need is a place to get by Our earth is a home for everyone And not just a place to survive You're listening to Asylum, a Not Thinking Straight special. Jamaica. Two similar stories, two very different outcomes. Dwight and Marsha both left Jamaica, escaping homophobic persecution. In a small town in Western Germany, these two friends are taking steps towards a new life. But only one can stay. Both say they've been attacked in Jamaica, a country where same-sex intercourse is illegal and which rights groups call one of the most dangerous places for LGBT people. I got stabbed when I was, um, when I was 17 because I was gay and I reported it and um, I didn't get any um, response from the police because I was direct about why they stabbed me. The guy saw me, he was riding on a bike and he said, um, like, oh, so you're back. Oh, so you're back. The next time that we see you, we're going to make sure that you die. In Jamaica, because I'm openly lesbian, been an activist since Jamaica, I am known. So certain places, it's not safe for me. I went to, I remember I went to dinner um, in Sovereign Plaza with a friend. And that's where we were basically stoned with glass bottles and stones. In seeking asylum, they faced the same court on the same day. The judge accepted Marsha's story, she can stay. But Dwight's case was rejected. The court said he could live safely in Jamaica. He takes a call from his caseworker. There's no good news. He's to be deported. I didn't came, come to Germany because I want to. I come here because I'm running for my life. And for, for them to say, oh, you're safe, go back. I think that's unfair, so. That's how I actually feel about it. And most of the time I think about like giving up because I don't, I don't see myself going back to Jamaica, not even in a body bag or something. I don't see myself going back there at all. I cannot go back there. Their diverging outcomes reflect the findings of a study of LGBT asylum seekers in Europe. 
Academics from the University of Sussex found that a third of applicants felt their stated sexual orientation was disbelieved, and 40% are told they face no persecution at home. German migration authorities say their staff are trained to treat LGBT claimants sensitively, and that the differing outcomes may depend on how each applicant tells their story. The asylum procedure is a special procedure in itself, where it always depends on the individual case. And as individual nuances can always be different, one cannot make sweeping statements on this. Dwight is trying to keep a positive outlook. He has already learnt German and wants to train as a care worker. He's hoping for an intervention to allow him to stay in Germany, close to his friend Marsha and far away from his fears of life in Jamaica. Well, I'm joined now from Frankfurt by Dr. Nina Held. She's a researcher at the University of Sussex in the UK and has written a report into LGBT asylum seekers in the UK and in, in Germany. Nina, why do you think Dwight's claim has been rejected while Marsha's wasn't? That's a very good uh, question. Thank you. And um, so just uh, uh, shortly, we've worked for four years on this project uh, looking at uh, Sochi claims across Europe. And we have identified this as one of the main issues with those claims, that there is often an inconsistency in decision making. So we have this case of Dwight and Marsha, both from the same country, both have experienced persecution. And in one case, the claim is accepted and the other case, it is not. Um, we have to remember um, court settings are very terrifying settings. So you have to tell your story in front of a judge. You have to talk about very intimate aspects of your life. There is an interpreter in the room, so you can't, um, you know, the flow of your story might be stopped because you have to stop after a couple of sentences and let the uh, interpreter translate. So it's not a very comfortable setting. Um, Twice court hearing, I think, lasted between 20 and uh, between 20 and 30 minutes, and in this time, he couldn't convince the, the judge that he has a well-founded fear of persecution, which is the basis of the Refugee Convention. That's what you have to demonstrate. Um, the, the reason given was that it's safe for him to go back and relocate uh, to the north of Jamaica to a tourist area where it's actually not affordable for most people to live there. And uh, there's also the question whether it would be safe for gay person to live mm. there, because as the report says, homophobia is widespread in Jamaica, it's very dangerous. And I would be very concerned about Dwight's life now if he was uh, deported back to mm. Jamaica. In, in your study, you say there is a culture of disbelief among Migration Authority staff. I mean, how do you actually prove you're gay, for example, to one of those civil servants? Exactly. In our study, we spoke to more than 200 uh, asylum claimants, LGBTQI asylum claimants, and this was always mentioned as um, most of those people were refused. Yeah, so the majority of the people were refused, and most were very desperate and were saying, "I don't know what else can I do to prove my sexuality." And maybe any person who's listening now could ask themselves, "How would you prove your sexuality?" So it's 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 very difficult, and with in terms of the culture of disbelief. I think often decision makers start with the premise that the person is not telling the truth instead of the other way around mm. to actually start 
premise that what they're saying is true. And I think our participants, we have made a film, a series of short films that are called I am who I say I am. And I think that's what our participants would say. They, they are LGBT. How are they going to prove it? But critics say claiming to be gay or lesbian is just an easy way to ask for asylum. Do they have a point? Briefly, if you can. No, they don't. That, that's not a point at all. Because as I said, we've, we've uh, interviewed more than 200 people, or more than 200 people participated in our study, and they could definitely say it's not easy to win a claim on uh, sexuality and gender identity grounds. It is very, very difficult, and there is a culture of disbelief. How do you prove that uh, you are gay? And if you're coming from a country where there's so much shame and stigma around, over 70. Uh, 70 countries in the world still criminalize homosexuality. If, you want, mm. if you're from one of these countries, how do you feel about talking about your sexuality? This mm. is very difficult even for LGBTQI people. And even that would be even more difficult for heterosexual people to fake it, so, so to say. So, mm. uh, no, it's not, it's not easy. Definitely not, no. Nina Held, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. I cannot behave in any way that will, that will confirm that I am gay because I, I fear, I genuinely fear how some persons might respond. Um, I have been really the, the slurs, you know, sodomite, uh, lesbian, that kind of thing, have been hurled at me. Um, I came out one Saturday night and found a note etched in the dust on my rear windshield and on the side, Batman for dead. Lesbians are murdered, right? A lot of us are raped, especially the more masculine ones. We have to take, you know, public transportation with risk, um, walk about in the public thoroughfares under great threat, um, and unless we can insulate ourselves, we're vulnerable. Our legal system does not criminalize sexual orientation. Our legal system criminalizes certain acts um, and there are three sections of our Offences Against the Persons Act, which we lump together and call the Burgery Law. Um, they actually speak to um, the act of anal intercourse, um, whether between a man and a woman, or a man and a man, or a man and a beast, which is another unfortunate piece about it, that it lumps bestiality with it. Um, and then it, it talks about other kinds of sexual acts, intimate acts that are criminalized. Um, so it really is just, it's not criminalizing orientation, but certain kinds of acts that suggest a certain kind of orientation. The churches have a lot to, to, to answer for, because you have to fall within a, a certain framework a certain ideal, as they would put it. And if you fall anywhere out of sight of that, you are not worthy of that quality of citizenship. I was born here, my parents were born here. 
and that inherent right that I have as a Jamaican to the equality, equality should be afforded to everyone. We are, we are considered a Christian society. Um, and the Guinness Book of Records will say we have the most churches per square mile. Um, but that also presents a lot of problems because we, we find though that the intolerance is fed a lot by um, fundamentalist Christian beliefs and an inability to attempt to negotiate um, the issues when they come upon you and so rather than engaging with them you disconnect with them and disconnect with that person whom you identify as and then um, push them out. We need to get to a place where Jamaicans live up to our motto, which is out of many, one people. We live and let live. The, the things that used to define us in the 70s, where we did not interfere with individuals because they were different. And I think we will get there again. It will take some time. It will require more dialogue, education, and the, the, the removal of laws. But we have started on a road that we will not turn back. My parents, love me and they love me because they've pushed through all the fear and anxiety and hate that they've been socialized to have or to feel about LGBT people and they've, they've, they've come to recognize that yes I'm their child and I'm deserving of love. I want more Jamaican parents to be aware of that story and that many Jamaican parents here have, have done something very powerful by deciding to love their children regardless of their sexual orientation. Thankfully my parents didn't treat me any differently. Um, the, they still loved me and cared for me. The gay community is, despite the reality of the homophobia, is a very vibrant community. When I'm at a party and I'm surrounded by LGBT Jamaican people being themselves and having fun, I feel more at home than I've felt anywhere else in the world. Well, I can't live in fear. It makes no sense to cower inside my house and be afraid to walk the roads of my own country because I'm still Jamaican and it's still my country too. So I'm not going to be reduced to a second-class citizen just, citizen just because somebody is uncomfortable with my sexuality. I want to be able to be known first as a human being, then as a woman, then as a Jamaican. And that's all that matters. I deserve nothing less. And that is what I'd like to see for all Jamaicans. We would be respected. Um, we'd have full protection under the law. Um, and we'd be seen as equal citizens. Um, some people might push for civil unions or marriage rights, but honestly, I just want to not be discriminated against because I'm different.
listening to Not Thinking Straight, and I'm Michael Mack, and this is a story from the I'm From Driftwood podcast. Hi, my name is Adrian. I am from St. Anne, Jamaica. I um, spent most of my life growing up with my mom in Jamaica. Um, it was pretty difficult for me because I found out at an early age that I was gay. Um, didn't really understand much of what it was, but I found it really difficult to accept and love myself because what people thought of me. My mom did the best she could, um, but at the same time, for her, it was more embarrassing than anything else. You know, people going back to her and be like, oh, Nadine, your son is gay. Um, my dad hated my guts from the get-go, from the moment he found out. And other family members beat and abused me. On a daily basis, I would be bullied. I would be fighting battles to survive. I've always had to fight, physical fights. Um, to make it through the day and whenever it's a verbal altercation they would use like harsh words um, like batiman, baby germs, maggot, you know, versus saying gay. I, I feel like if they said I was gay or called me gay that would be much better. I remember my final year in college um, just before exams were finishing up um, this boy just chose to pick on me, pick on me and he was sitting behind me I was sitting in front and he threw, crumpled a piece of paper and threw it across the room and it hit me and everybody pointed and said it was him. Um, I threw the paper back at him and I said, go throw it at your mom, pretty much. And that just made him really pissed. We got out of school like at 3 p.m. and I met him and two other guys at the school gate. This is in college and they attacked me. So this was me wrestling three other guys, you know, because of the fact that I was gay. I remember handling them really well, like, you know, it was going in my favor. And then out of the blue, one guy just came running, psh, hit me in the head. Still have the scar to this day. And I just fell flat on the ground. Um, they ran off and um, lucky enough, the buses and cars that were passing stopped and I remember someone picked me up and a few hours later I was in the hospital. I woke up with stitches um, in the head and at that point I said, you know what, it's not gonna get any better. I was doing my finals and I wasn't finished doing my exams and I had to flee to the United States. My partner at the time was able to fly me over to New York and once I got here, um, we discovered that I'm eligible for asylum. So after visiting um, Immigration Equality and them hearing my story, they, they said, yes, definitely you have a case. Um, surprisingly, everyone at the school, um, in terms of like the guidance counselor and the principal, they were really working with me um, in helping me to make my affidavit. I would reach out to them and they would fax the necessary documents that I needed to make my case strong enough to win asylum. The hospital was able to um, submit a medical record of what happened. I was able to win asylum and um, I'm now a citizen of the United States. I'm here in New York 
I'm happy, I'm doing well. I finally connected with my family who hated my guts because I'm gay. Um, the hardest part for me right now is forgiving them and I'm learning how to forgive, but it does take time. Hopefully one day I can move from it and love them and show them that, you know what, no matter what, I still love you. Overall, everything is good, everything is better, and I'm happy with who I am. Better is out there, you just have to figure it out, you have to be a fighter. Um, because if I wasn't a fighter, if I didn't want to live a better life, I wouldn't have been here in the United States. But I took a chance, I came to New York with nothing, no money, nothing, and I made it. Um, so I would definitely just say to them, fight, hold on, don't give up, um, do your research, use your resources, and figure out a way to live and love yourself. It may surprise you to learn there are more than 80 countries in the world where it is illegal to be gay, including Uganda, Nigeria, and Russia. Avery Haynes now with one country that is also on that list and happens to be a tropical paradise destination for many Canadians. Avery. Thank you, Gorda. Gareth Henry is a human rights activist who wasn't trying to make any sort of political statement when he went to buy the person he loves a Valentine's Day card. It was a decision that completely changed and almost cost him his life. This is the image most of us have of Jamaica. Blue skies, sandy beaches, paradise. But if you're gay, it's a place to flee from, not a place to escape to. February 14, 2007. I decided to go and get my boyfriend something for Valentine's Day just to surprise him. I went into a pharmacy uh, in Kingston, Jamaica. A group of people started to gather. Over about 300 people that was gathered outside the pharmacy was shaking um, you know, pounding on the, on the doors. And then the police officers proceeded to beat me. With their guns, I was um, hit in the abdomen twice. I was slapped in the face. But one of the police officers said to me, you know, I know who you are. Who he is is Gareth Henry, an outspoken gay rights activist in a country where being gay is illegal in the eyes of the law and an evil sin in the eyes of the people. I think most Canadians think of Jamaica as being a winter vacation paradise, but it is really one of the most homophobic uh, countries in the world. Uh, it has laws that criminalize same-sex uh, relationships, same-sex activity, but there's also a high level of homophobic violence that e exists in society itself. That simple act of trying to buy a Valentine's Day card put Gareth's life in danger. That night I couldn't go home. That was when my life changed and changed and changed drastically. I went into hiding. But Gareth could only hide for so long. I was driving down and you know, I was stuck in traffic. A, a, a gentleman came across to my car and he said to me, we find you and we're going to kill you. I didn't go home. Gareth sought and was granted asylum in Canada. Had I stayed in Jamaica, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't have been alive today. But being alive comes with a cost. 
You're giving up the ability to go home. You're giving up the ability to be able to, to connect with family and friends in the way you want to. It's, it's giving up your culture. It's your way of life. Gareth is now an activist from afar, part of this Toronto organization called the Rainbow Railroad. The name came from the period of time in Canada's history where we had an underground railroad helping slaves escape persecution basically in the United States and come to Canada. I could say we could probably identify close to 60 people that we've actually helped get out of a place of risk to a place of safety. Gareth is grateful that Canada has offered him refuge but says running away should not be the answer. This celebration should be happening home where you know it's I'm experiencing my culture, I'm there with my friends. And so as the world converges on Toronto to celebrate, Gareth will be walking the parade for those who can't. I walk for gay men, lesbians, trans identified people in Jamaica in particular, but also around the world who don't have this freedom. It's to be able to stand tall and to, to hold that hope or that vision that the change or change will come. And there we leave this special asylum. I do hope these stories have touched you as they have touched me in perhaps open a window onto issues that other LGBT people have to face. We've barely scratched the surface really. I'd like to acknowledge contributions from the UNHCR, from the Asylum Seeker Centre, from the BBC, from the ITV News, from I'm from Driftwood of course, from Outright International in Iran, from DW News, Al Jazeera and the Inside Story in Canada. From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you've been listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, goodbye. Well, you can twist and shout. Let it all hang out. But you won't fool the children of the revolution. Now you won't fool the children of the revolution. Falling rain I drive a Rolls Royce Cause it's good for my voice But you won't fool The children of the revolution Now you won't fool The children of the revolution